All right, we come now to our text for the message, and it's found in Hebrews chapter 6. And so hopefully you are there. And we're looking at three verses today, but we're really looking at much more than that because this is a letter. It's not some little proverbs, right, given to us that are unconnected to what comes before or after, uh, but is a letter, a some people think a sermon, but regardless of what it is, it is presented to these hearers and to us today uh, as a warning, as an exhortation, as all of these things uh, that we might stay in the right path. Now Hebrews 5 was a chapter in which he was beginning to talk about the high priesthood of Christ and that there are requirements for being a priest. You can't just appoint yourself a priest. You can't just simply say, I'm going to do whatever I want and appoint myself and all these things. No, that's not the way a high priest is chosen. First of all, he must be from among men. He must represent the people he represents. He must be from among them. He must have shared experiences. He must understand the needs of the people on behalf of whom he is ministering. And we've gone much in depth on that. He also, it says, must be appointed. Was Christ appointed? Yes. We read that in the Psalms, don't we? You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. God appointed Christ as a perfect high priest. And so there's all these things that must be in order to be a high priest. And the author wants to exposit these things, doesn't he? He wants to talk about these things, but he comes to a point where he realizes that it, it's not going to be understood. He says, there is much I want to say on this, much that there is to be said on this, and it's hard to explain. These are difficult doctrinal truths, but I can't go forward. I can't go forward because you've become dull of hearing, lazy in your hearing. You won't hear what I'm saying. And then as we looked at the end of chapter 5, and it's very important because if you look at the beginning of chapter 6, there's the word therefore. And we don't have to go through that over and over again, but we know, right, where there's a therefore, it's tying to what's been said before. And so again, we need to think about what he's just been saying. And what he's just been saying is, you haven't grown Your ears are still dull of hearing, for by now you should be teaching others. And you're still in the kindergarten of faith. That's more or less what he says, the ABCs of the faith. You are still there in the most elementary matter as being taught to you, when by now you should be teaching the young ones of the faith the elementary matters. And we talked about this. This gives the expectation that all Christians should be teaching someone, their children, someone who is not as far along as they are. Not all are meant to be uh, elders and, and necessarily teachers in the sense we traditionally think about it, but all should be able to teach someone. God has willed it this way, that we would be able to raise up those, if you will, young in the faith. And so by now you should be teaching, he says, an expectation, and yet no, you still need to be taught. And to be taught those most elementary things. Now we talked about what those things are, and I really believe it says something of the church today that that's what churches think are some of the deeper doctrinal matters are the things that he's calling the elementary doctrinal matters. And then on top of that, he exposits here in just a moment today what some of those things are, what we are not to continue to build a foundation of. And so we want to look at that in just a moment. But notice he says by now, three to five years, most scholars think, you should be able to teach, but you haven't progressed. You still need milk. 
Now, we want to come back to this because it's an important illustration. We want to see how this author is using real-world illustrations, but we understand this one, don't we? We were all babies at one time. We all drank milk, but it wasn't intended that we drink milk forever. We were to move on to solid food, to meat, and that's the illustration here. Everyone who can only partake of milk is unskilled in the Word and therefore a babe. A babe in the faith. No, that is not God's intention for you. You are to grow. If you want to know if you're a full age in the faith, if you have matured in the faith, can you handle solid food of doctrine? Can you handle it? If not, then it's time to think about this and start to grow. Start to not stay where you are. So solid food belongs to those who not only have learned, so there's a doctrinal learning aspect of this, but notice what he also says, those who can teach, we're not growing to pass some exam, right? We're growing in our knowledge to be a benefit to the work of Christ. This is what Paul says over and over. All of our gifting, all that God does to help us along is to help others. This is the point. We are discipled to disciple others. These gifts are given to each for the benefit of all. And this goes with learning too. You are to grow in your knowledge to benefit the people of God. There's something else he says too that's important. Solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is, listen to this. That is, in other words, here's who he's speaking of. Those who by reason of use, so use of this knowledge that they're given, use of this doctrine that they are given, have their senses exercised, developed, strengthened to discern both good and evil. So again, we've said this over and over in Paul's writings. We've said why we don't think this is Paul who's writing this, but I can see why people think so. This is something Paul hammers over and over again. Paul says, look, orthodoxy is to be used for orthopraxy, right? How, what we know is to work itself out in how we live, how we live. And so again, it is expected that you are learning to grow, growing to teach, and living out your faith in a real practical sense. That you should be able to discern good and evil, that you should be able to walk in this world as a disciple of Jesus Christ, growing in your faith. Now if we understand all of that, it brings us to what we're looking at today, to this text. Now a lot of scholars have some difficulty with chapter 6, and I understand why. We're going to get to that over the next several weeks. But we do want to see this follows right after what's been said in chapter 5. He says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And thus, and this we will do if God permits. As we think about this text today, I want us to look at a starting point, and that is a basic illustration that we want to look at that's in the text today. If you will, begin again with that very first point we want to make, that our author in the Spirit wants us to think about what we just read in chapter 5, or just looked at in chapter 5, as the basis for what he's arguing now. It begins with, therefore, therefore, based on all that's been said, we need to leave the elementary principles. These are the things that he called the elemental teachings, the oracles of God, those elementary things, those, those ABCs that you should have gained very early on. You need to 
move past those things. He does not mean leave them as if they don't exist. And we're going to see in a moment that he means leave them as in build upon them. Use those as a springboard to move into other things, not leaving them as if they no longer exist. But I believe he's going to have a very important way of thinking about this in just a moment that will help us to understand the entirety of chapter 6. But again, what are we to do then? We're to leave them or springboard out of them toward what? Well, he tells us toward teliotes or maturity, fullness, perfection. Some translations have it. But we know that what this perfection really means is maturity or fullness. We are to move toward what God has called us to as much as is possible. Christian maturity We should be leaving these elementary principles and moving on toward maturity. Now, what does he mean by this? Go back a couple of weeks ago to the very basic illustration that we were looking at. When you think about the ABCs or the elementary things, what might those be? Well, I don't remember. Maybe some of you do. But I'm sure it's literally ABCs, right? One, two, threes, these sorts of things. But you don't teach ABCs so they simply know the alphabet. You don't teach one, two, three, so they simply understand numbers. You do it to lay a foundation for words and sentences and paragraphs, right? For reading and for writing, or in those numbers for addition and subtraction and multiplication and division and eventually maybe calculus, right? That's why we do it. We can't start with calculus. You may remember just a few weeks ago we were talking about this. You don't start with college math. You hope to end with college math, right? Or maybe beyond, into graduate math if you're going to go that route. But you don't start there because it would be unpalatable to a, to a child. They wouldn't understand it. I wouldn't understand it if we're honest about it. If you start doing out advanced college math or graduate math, you're going to have to explain it to me, not the other way around. right? I wouldn't be prepared for it. I don't have all the groundwork laid for it along the way. But in the same way, whatever it is we're teaching, we expect that it's a building block for something greater. And he says, in the same way we should think about faith, we are taught some basics of the faith. When you come into the the faith, you know very little. And it's expected over time you will know more and even much more. If after 50 years in the church you know what you knew 50 years ago and nothing more, then something's gone wrong, right? The the church has done a terrible job. You've done a terrible job. Probably all of the above. All of the above. And so we have to realize that this is setting for us that there is an expectation that the Lord places that we will grow in the faith. It's a natural principle, right? Whatever is living grows and matures. And so again, he's saying this for us. We ought to recognize this is what we are to do. This is not a principle that's alien to the New Testament or to Scripture. Paul makes this point about his journey of faith. He's not running the race merely as one running. He's doing what? He's trying to earn the crown. He wants to win the race. He's not in the gym boxing as one who merely aims to beat air. What does he say? I'm planning to get in the ring one day, right? I'm training as a fighter because I'm going to have an opponent to face one day. Same principle. To think, well, I'm going to go to the gym every day. Maybe you you might know a a young man, 18 or 19 years old, spends six or seven hours a day at the gym, hitting punching bags and so forth. You say, what's your goal? He says, oh, to get better at punching punching bags. 
What's the career there? What, what are you hoping to accomplish? Nothing, right? There's accomplishing nothing um, unless literally you're satisfied with just hitting a bag a little better. But Paul was making the point the goal should be to get in the ring and beat an opponent. That's why the athletes train, right? That's why they're temperate in all things. That's why they watch their diet. That's why they go to bed early and they make sure they get adequate sleep and they're up at the break of dawn and they are running and training and working hard because they have something they're trying to achieve. And Paul says our spiritual life should be no different. We should be struggling because the the truth is the battle is real. The spiritual battle that's going on is real. God expects us to be growing and maturing and developing and strengthening our walk and our knowledge and all these things that we might be ready for the battle that is to come. The battle that we're in in the present, whether we recognize it or not, And I think part of the issue here in Hebrews is they don't realize that they're in a battle. They don't realize what's going on. And and this author is trying to work through this to them. So, again, they should be moving on toward maturity, a picture given to us over and over in the Scriptures. When Peter says that we are to strive after the, the milk, what does he mean? When you're a new believer, you should strive after milk. Your baby is hungry for milk, right? When your baby gets hungry, it wants milk. That's the right food for a baby. This author says, that's not what your food is supposed to be down the road, right? So recognize this need to grow in our faith. Now, if we understand that, we realize why he says, let us move on from the elementary things. Let us move on from the milk to the meat. Let us move on to what he calls perfection or maturity. Let's move toward that. That is what we are to do. That is God's will for us. God's will is that no one remain a babe in the faith. If you are called by the faith, transformed by the Holy Spirit, His will for you is to grow. Now, we may not all grow at the same pace or in the same ways, but we should all be growing. That is given to us here as a principle of Scripture. So again, let us move on toward maturity. But how do we do that? Now we come to this illustration that I want us to think about. It's a real-world illustration, just like the illustration of Milk and meat is easy to understand. I sat up here and explained it, but I didn't really need to, did I? You all understand. This is a human life principle, something we understand from our lives. And likewise, so is this. Let us not lay again the foundation. Now, everybody here knows what a foundation is. Nobody, I'm sure, maybe I'm wrong. I doubt anybody looked at the front of their bulletin and thought, what is that? You looked at the front of your bulletin and said, oh, there's a foundation. Right? Now, maybe it's not the best foundation you've ever seen. Maybe it is. I don't know. But it's a foundation. Anybody who looks at that and says, there's a foundation there. And then you see the title of the sermon and you think, oh, he's going to be getting into building upon a foundation. Probably not a, a block foundation, but a spiritual foundation. But the principle is the same. There's a foundation that must be set that is intended to be built upon. You don't go and lay a foundation out for a house and then expect never to build a house upon it. Now, that happens sometimes, doesn't it? Uh, Maybe somebody's financing falls through or or something happens that interrupts the plan, but that isn't the plan to begin with. This is what Jesus warned about building a tower, isn't it? He said, what one of you would begin to build a tower and not make sure he has the resources to finish it and leave it half built? What's his point? It would be ridiculous. It would be something to be ridiculed. He says, make sure that you have what you need to complete it. And in the same way, When we see a foundation, we think somebody's going to build something upon this foundation. There's a foundation set to build a a building of some kind. 
Well, he's obviously spiritualizing this, isn't he? You have a foundation, he's saying, that you are expected to build upon. If you were to stay, this is just another parallel illustration, if you were to stay in the milk as a babe, it would be like having a foundation that was left unattended, unimproved. It wouldn't make sense. Just as the picture of the baby expected to grow through the milk to solid food, so God expects if you have a foundation set, you're going to build something upon it. That's just logic. I don't have to explain that to you. That's just logic. And so we come to this and say, okay, this author is arguing there is a foundation, but you need to build upon it. Don't lay that foundation again. That's what he says. Don't put it down again. Now, I think a lot of people say what he's saying here is you shouldn't build a new foundation or build again a foundation. I think he's actually arguing you can't build again a foundation. When you move forward into Hebrews 6, his argument is you can't build again a foundation. And we'll be looking at that in just a moment. But again, look at what this foundation is because I think as we look at it, we want to see the elements here of what this foundation is described as. And so beginning, he says it's this elementary principles, right? And what are these things? Well, look at them for a moment. Because he says, not laying again the foundation of... So here's what these, this foundation is, is made up of. Repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And by the way, there's six things here, but they're in pairs of two. So dead works, repentance from dead works, and faith towards God, that's one. Of the doctrine of baptism, or really that word is of washings, of washings, and the laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now, most of you know chapter 6, if you've been in church for any length of time, chapter 6 is a difficult chapter. It's one that's much debated, discussed, worked through, tried to, uh, to be wrestled with. And we can understand why as you look at it. It's got some frightful warnings. It's got a lot said. And many of the scholars say, how does verses 1 through 3 tie into what's said for and after? He's talking about don't, don't go back to your foundation. You need to grow and then he immediately jumps in, as you'll see next Sunday. We're going to be looking at this next Sunday. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. So if you had all these benefits, he says, it's impossible to come back. Impossible to come back. And this is why I think we need to think about this illustration as you can't build again the foundation. It can't be built again. And we'll look at, at why in just a moment. I'm trying to walk us slowly through this so that we'll understand it as we put it all together. So one of the complications for scholars on this is these six items in, in three pairs are all things they've pointed out that Jews agreed with. And don't forget, this is something... The, the illustration we're looking at here, or the real-world example we have here, is of Jewish Christians who are saying we're going to leave the church and go back to the synagogue. And he says that to do that would be to show your babes in the faith, unskilled in the word of righteousness, and would show what? That you're trying to build again the foundation. Now, if we can start with that and begin to grasp what that means, then chapter 6 will clear up for us, I believe. So what does it mean? Well, again, let's see how a Jew would agree to these things. Did Jews believe that we should repent? 
of sin. Of course. There's much in the Bible about how they define sin and righteousness, but, but again, yes, they would agree with that. They would say, absolutely, we can go back to Moses and we can do that. We can still be a repentant people and repent from dead works of faith towards God. Well, of course. Jews believe that you're to have faith toward God. I mean, when Paul says, the just shall live by faith, did he just make that phrase up? No. He got it from Habakkuk, didn't he? Habakkuk 2.4. Paul was quoting the Old Testament. And Paul came to understand exactly how that phrase and how that text is to be understood, as Martin Luther did. But again, he's quoting the Old Testament. So again, a Jew would say, well, of course we are to have faith toward God. Of course we are. Well, what else? Ritual washings? You find them in the Old Testament, don't you? And they're sometimes there even interpreted as baptisms, washings. Okay, what about the laying on of hands? All throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, you find the laying on of hands. Moses laid hands on Joshua. They've already been discussed in this letter, both of them. Laying on of hands were for blessing, for healing, for, if you will, the symbol of passing authority down to to someone who would come after you. And what about the resurrection of the dead? That's a doctrine most Jews believed in, is it not? In fact, it was one of the things in Mark's gospel that marks the Sadducees as a minority party in the religious government, if you will, of Israel because they denied the resurrection. They said there is no resurrection from the dead. In fact, they tried to trip Jesus up on this, didn't they? By using an example of marriage and then a a woman marries her husband's brother and on and on and on and whose wife will she be in the resurrection? They were trying to poke holes in the doctrine, mock the doctrine of resurrection. And Jesus says, I can answer this very easily. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, what did he say? I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No, he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as if they yet lived. Again, Jesus says the tense of one verb establishes a doctrine that there is a resurrection from the dead. Now, what's interesting is the various ways they understood this. And by the way, we could have taken each of these phrases and preached an entire sermon on them. So I'm trusting that these are things that we know. Think about in John's Gospel, when Jesus goes back after Lazarus has died and Martha comes out to meet him, what does she say? I know my brother will rise again on the last day, on this idea of the day of resurrection. Now, there's a a hope there, isn't there? There is a doctrinal position that she's holding to that my brother, though he's dead, will live again. Even in body, he will live again. So the resurrection is not something... Uh, that was a minority position amongst Israel. So they believed it. And what about the judgment of God? They believed in that, right? It's all throughout the Old Testament. So again, all these are things that they held to. And they seem to be wanting to go back to, in a sense. They're going to leave the church in order to hold on to these things. Now, how is that? It's kind of complicated, isn't it? Because that's what he says, if you hold on to these things, if you seize only to these, if you stay with the milk, then what you're in essence doing is staying with the foundation and never building upon it. Well, how is that? How is that? I think the answer is, the point is all these things are in the Old Testament revelation, in the oracles of God, because they point to their own fulfillment in the New Testament. There's a new way to understand them in the New Testament. What we've been preaching is that all these things that you understood from your Judaism pointed you forward to Christianity. 
The end of the law is Christ Jesus, Paul said. Now, we could walk through each of these things, right? How about just with the resurrection, with Martha? She says, I know my brother will live again, raised on the last day. Jesus says what? I am the resurrection and the life. It's not a day. It's not even a theological position. It is in a person and His work. It is in Jesus that we will one day rise again. And what this author is saying is you're trying to take Jesus out of it. By going back to the synagogue, you're going back to those elementary lessons that you learned years ago that the intention was to take you by the hand and lead you to Christ. And you're wanting to go back to elementary school, back to the, the, the testimony of Moses, which was good and solid testimony, but was to lead you to the solid food of the New Testament. Now, we could go through many pictures, couldn't we? Paul talks about in Galatians, a schoolmaster who leads us to Christ, takes us by the hand and leads us to Christ. Talks about in Romans, the law being like that, it, it points to Christ, the end, right? The, the aim of the law is Christ. Same argument, same argument. All those things were to point you to what is built upon those things. You had the foundation in Judaism. You had a good foundation, a solid foundation, but it's incomplete if it doesn't take you to Jesus. If it doesn't take you to all the ways He fulfills these things. Ritual washings. Can you wash yourself clean? No. We are washed clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. Baptism pictures that. You see, you no longer need all those ceremonial and religious washings of the Old Covenant. You need baptism. But baptism pictures the completed work of Christ and your participation in it. We've got a book out here on that, don't we, on the table. Again, fulfilled in Christ. Repentance from dead works. Well, guess what? Even many of your religious works under the Old Covenant were dead works. You just didn't realize it. Because many of you were running through motions and not having true faith in God and putting repentance in Him. And that's why those are together. Faith even that we knew we were to have in the Old Covenant. Faith toward God. Now we understand that it's faith in the person and work of Jesus. Faith in the person and work of Jesus. And see, what you're trying to do is go back and say, well, I can have a more general faith in God and that's enough. As we move forward in chapter 6, what you're going to see is when you've had the fulfillment, you can't go back to the shadow. You can't go back to the part when you've had the whole. Because to know of Jesus and to say, no, I'll go back to Moses, is to say you don't have need of Jesus. This is the problem. If you go to the illustration again of ignorance, Christian says to him, you make Jesus the redeemer of your works when Jesus came to be the Redeemer of persons. What you're saying is, I don't need Jesus to redeem me. I can get gussied up through the law. But Paul eliminates that, doesn't he? I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness cometh by law, Christ died in vain. I don't need Jesus if it can be done through Moses. We talked in Romans about those categories. We are in Adam condemned, or in Christ redeemed. There is no in Moses. So to leave Jesus and go back is to go into Adam again. Now the truth is we don't think you can come out of Adam and go back in. What he's saying is you show us you were always in Adam. You're at home in Adam. And that's why you can't lay again the foundation. 
I think what he's trying to really picture here that would have been understood, we're not a people who were raised in Judaism and have heard Christianity and entered the church. You've got to think about the way Jews at this time, very early in the church's history, pictured Christianity. They pictured it as, oh, all that we've learned and our parents learned was to be completed in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of all these things. That's why for a long time they didn't see themselves as not Jews. You know, it was really late in the game, if you will, years and years before it really Christianity caught on as a title, right? Uh, that they were Christians, and it was kind of a slur at first, and they said, eventually adopted it and said, you know what, yeah, we are. We're little Christ ones, right? We, we're those that follow Him. He's our Master. But it took a long time before they recognized that not everybody accepts this as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Many of the Jews didn't accept it. We know that. But again, they were looking at it as though this is the house that God has built upon a foundation. And the foundation is all those teachings that we were prepared for this new teaching with. What they're trying to do, he's saying, would be as if you have a foundation set and you're trying to build another foundation on top of it. It makes no sense. It will not work. And so again, he says the proper end of a foundation is something that is to be built upon it, that finishes the foundation. It's the purpose of the foundation. You can't stop at the foundation and have what is intended. But that's what you're trying to do. You've heard about the building that's to be built on the foundation, and you're saying, no, I'm good with the foundation. The problem is the foundation isn't enough. Moses isn't enough. The law isn't enough. The law was to take us somewhere. And the problem is all that's been revealed to you. Again, I don't want to jump ahead, but it's important for us to understand this. That's why he moves on to say, For it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. You've experienced all these things. You can't go back to a world in which it's only shadow. Right? You've seen the fulfillment of all these things. You can't go back pretending that isn't the case. To go back means to reject the fullness and to accept the shadow. And that is not acceptable to God. Because to say, I'd rather go back away from the church, is tantamount to saying, I reject Jesus. And this author is saying, if you do that, then you show you had neither part nor lot with us. It's not that you lost salvation. You make evident to us you never had it. There was never a house built on the foundation. There was only the foundation. Only the foundation. And the foundation is what you want to take back to Judaism and seem like you think it'll be perfectly fine. And it will be perfectly fine in Judaism. The problem is it won't be perfectly fine to the God who demands you build upon that foundation. And so again, my friends, what we're seeing here is the groundwork for the argument that's to come. You've been amongst the people of God. You've seen the work of the Spirit. You've seen all these things. You can't pretend as if you hadn't. Now, we could walk through and talk about all the things he's been saying to point to this. Moses was pointing forward to Jesus. Don't cling to Moses when Moses would say, quit clinging to me and look to Jesus. Joshua points to Jesus. How? As one who was not able to offer rest, but pointed to the one who could offer rest. 
Aaron points to Jesus. How? His work was never finished. Never finished. Year after year, he had to complete his work. Aaron died it not being completed. So guess what? The next high priest had to be appointed. And he did it year after year, year after year, until he died. And guess what? Another is appointed. And on and on and on. And the author says, is that God's ultimate plan? For there to forever be a string of imperfect priests? Or was he pointing to something that would come through all of that? To a perfect priest who would reign and rule forevermore, who would offer a once and for all perfect sacrifice for sinners. You see, you can't go back to Aaron once you've seen Jesus because you reject Jesus and say, give me Aaron. So as we come a little bit further in this text and we come to this part where he's talking about to go back and accept the less means you can never come back to the fullness. He's making a point here Once you have this foundation, you can't build another foundation on top of it. Logic tells you that. You must go from the foundation to the building or the foundation loses its purpose. There is a foundation. There is a purpose for a foundation, isn't there? It's to be built upon. And this author says, you've been in the presence of those who have taught you and and shown you. You've seen all these things. When, When the gospel was preached here, it did not come just as the words of men, but it was accompanied with power. Paul says that in Thessalonians, and he says it here. You saw it attested with signs and wonders and miracles and works of God. God co-testified to it. That's what he said, right? God co-testified. It wasn't just that whatever apostle came and brought the gospel to you was just his words and you had to trust his authority. God put his stamp of approval on it. You saw that. How can you unsee it? You can't. So to hear all this, to see all this, to be in the presence of all this, and to walk away is loss. It is loss. And so, my friends, as we get ready to move forward into the rest of this chapter, I think we need to take something out of this, not only to take seriously the warning that's coming, and it is a serious and frightful warning, but we also need to remember this. We are called to be a people who are to grow and mature. If you are in Christ, He expects you to be growing and maturing in your faith, and that means it requires diligence. It means, yes, it means turning off the television and picking up the Word of God and reading it. It means having time in prayer. It means being involved in your church. It means all these things. And so, my friends, we need to maybe leave today with the question, where are we at? Are we growing? Are we moving forward to perfection, really maturity? Are we maturing? 